0: everyone, welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Andrea Miller, and my guest today is the co-host of one of my favorite podcasts, Pantsuit Politics. Beth Silvers co-hosts this bipartisan podcast that focuses on nuanced and graceful dialogue about the toughest issues we face as a nation. Pantsuit Politics is celebrating its five-year anniversary this month with over 10 million downloads since its existence. In addition to the Pantsuit Politics podcast, Beth also co-hosts the Nuance Life podcast, and she's co-author of the book, I Think You're Wrong, But I'm Listening, a guide to grace-filled political conversations, which if you haven't read or listened to her podcast, I highly recommend both. Before becoming a podcast host, Beth practiced law for six years then worked as a human resource executive for five years. She's been recognized as one of Ohio's most powerful and influential women by the Ohio Diversity Council, a human resource game changer by Workforce Magazine, and one of Cincinnati's 40 Under 40 business leaders. In our conversation today, Beth shares her story that led her to the role she now has of talking politics and the passion she has for grace-filled political conversations. She shares how the last four years have shifted her political leaning and the powerful role stories have played in her evolution of thought. We talk about how to move forward with friends and family in this time of political division, and if it really is possible to have grace-filled political conversations with folks who may have voted differently than you in this last election. Listen in on our conversation. Well, thank you for joining me today. You're welcome. So basically, I felt bad because all along I've been planning on just you, and then your producer—I don't know—is Elise, your assistant. Yeah, yeah. She, she was like, oh, I was planning on both of you. And I was like, okay, I don't know what to do with that because I'm honored to talk to both of them. But I feel like your story resonates with me so much. I totally relate to it. And I think it will with my listeners. So That's great. I went with just having you to have the conversation, even though part of me is like, dang it, I could have talked to both of them. But um, <laughs> I, totally just, I love you both. I have been listening to your podcast, gosh, for... Over two years, and thank you. And my faith has evolved as my politics have evolved. So we'll talk about that today. I guess we haven't officially started. So welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast, Beth.
1: Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.
0: And uh, like I said, I'm nervous because you are a professional podcaster, officially. I think. I mean, you've been doing your podcast Pantsy Politics for five years. This month, five years.
1: It's hard to believe yeah I think that officially makes us like grandmothers in the podcast Uh, and and I'm like a baby (laughs) learning and I'm
0: I'm literally like sweating talking to you so I'm just gonna have to take a breath um we're just chatting okay that's what I'm gonna say and that's what I usually say but so today we're gonna dive into several things everything we can in an hour but what makes my podcast a little bit different is we're going to talk about your story and kind of your evolution of faith and politics and how you got into it. And then we're going to talk wherever our conversation leads on politics and what's going on right now, because goodness, there's so much to talk about. So like I said, you have a podcast. I'm guessing a lot of my listeners know of you. Pants Politics, you are Beth from the right. Do we still say that? Well, we don't. We, okay. we started saying that.
1: And in 2019, we rebuilt so- that, to, okay. really, to really talk less about a left-right dynamic because good. I just don't meet that expectation Okay, uh, in 2020. And that's fine.
0: Okay, uh, that's So
1: we're, we're out of left-right and more into just, we want to have grace-filled conversation. Okay,
0: very good. Mm-hmm. And that's something my daughter, so I have an eight, well, she'll be 18 next, ah, in like not next week, in like three days. So she loves your podcast too. She is oh, like thanks. majoring in political science, wanting to be in law and politics. So she just, I think she, I went up a level on her book, Getting to Talk to You Today. (laughs) So, but her and I saw you and Sarah at Evolving Faith last year in Denver. So we got to hear you speak in person and that just made her your, made mine. And I bought her your book last year, but I hadn't read it because she loves to talk politics and I am not, I don't love to talk politics. (laughs) But I read your book in preparation for our interview and it's so helpful, especially for, again, what we're, looking at right now um and we'll dive into some things in that because i'm really curious how we apply them to right now to have those grace-filled conversations so before we do that beth let's just start with well i'll i will have pre-recorded like your professional bio but tell us like what you do in your day-to-day where you live and then we're going to dive into your story of how you got involved in politics and talking sure
1: well i live in union kentucky which is right outside of cincinnati ohio If you are a Kentuckian, my exit has the big water tower that says Florence Y'all on it. So um, I'm I'm in Northern Kentucky with my family. I have two daughters, Jane, who is nine. Ellen is five. My husband is Chad. We both worked from home pre-pandemic and traveled for work. And now we are both here together all the time with our kiddos. We're all very close, as I think many families are experiencing. We have a miniature schnauzer named Lucy, who is just... My one of my babies too. I was a lawyer um, immediately coming out of school, so I spent six years practicing law. Primarily, I did corporate bankruptcy work because I graduated from law school in two thousand six. So it took me right into the financial crisis. I went right into the fire of big corporate bankruptcies. Learned a lot from that. I never enjoyed it. After six years of practice, I decided. You know, I I love to work. I want to love the work that I'm doing. And so I went to my firm, pitched a position that would help me help the firm through more work on training and development and just connecting with people and making sure that people were in the, the best jobs that really brought out their gifts and eventually became the chief human resources officer for the firm. So I spent five years on the business side, six years practicing. Sarah and I started the podcast after my second daughter was born. She was a few months old when we did our first episode. And it became more than a hobby pretty fast. Wow. And two years in, we were signing an agreement to write our first book. We signed that agreement in October. The book was due in February. Oh, and goodness. so I decided something in my life has to give. I can no yeah. longer keep all of these balls in the air. So In December of 2017, I quit my full time job to work in in podcasting, which sounded (sighs) just insane to everyone in my life and to me, too. And I kept telling my husband, you know, if this doesn't if we cannot support ourselves this way, then I will just have had a sabbatical and I will find a job and I will get back to it. So I also did some business coaching, um, which I still do, but I'm going to let that go in 2021 okay. because Sarah and I now, we have the book, I think you're wrong, but I'm listening, A Guide to grace Political Conversations. We have Pantsuit Politics, which produces two podcasts a week. We have The Nuanced Life, which produces one podcast a week. And then we have Patreon and social media and speaking engagements. And we're just finding... That there is such a need to spend more time talking with people, not just about politics, but about civics and government and how we communicate with each other and how we understand our society. So um, we're staying busy and I love the work that we do. And it's it's my full time job, along with virtual schooling now.
0: Yeah, there's such a need to educate people on governments and civics and politics. It's more than just these conversations. And I love that you're always saying, like, let's ask better questions. And you are trying to educate people on your podcast and not just, quote, debating certain issues. Like, there's so much more to it. So the work you do is so important. And I'm grateful for you guys. I mean, you've educated me so much. So... Going back, like, let's just back up to your childhood and leading you down the road of law school, because in your book, it says that in very different ways, the two of us have been talking politics our whole life. So have you were you always interested in politics or had that leaning? I Maybe just share a little bit about your upbringing, childhood. And the role of faith.
1: I grew up um, on a dairy farm in Western Kentucky. My mom was a teacher and my dad farmed and also was the minister of music at our church. Okay. And so uh, my church was a Southern Baptist church. It was kind of a weird Southern Baptist church. I'm going to be honest with you. My pastor was an excommunicated Catholic. Okay. And so he brought lots of um, Catholic traditions into our church. And but my my congregation was just kind of made up of a lot of people who held everything pretty loosely So when you're in vacation Bible school, we studied religions of the world. And so every day was themed around a different world religion. And now when I talk with people who grew up in the Southern Baptist church, they're like, what? That would a thousand percent not have happened. So I didn't know it that in this tiny place in Kentucky, I was getting a very progressive version Mm -hmm. of faith. Uh, But I was from a young age and my family made church more than we attended it because my dad was music minister. My mom played the piano. I taught a children's choir. I mean, we just, we were, we were there to make church happen. So I never thought much about the intersection of faith and politics growing up because I really didn't hear about politics at church. Um, my parents though, were really dedicated to news. They read the newspaper front to back every single day. As soon as cable news was a thing, it was on in my home, and I remember um, the Operation Desert Storm. Talking with my parents about that a lot. I remember Clarence Thomas's confirmation hearing. I remember O.J. Simpson and the Bronco, and just watching all of that with them. And you know, my dad, in addition to the church and the farm served on um, Kentucky Farm Bureau's Board of Directors, doing a lot of agricultural lobbying. So my parents just had this sense that we participate in our community in some way. And that starts with knowing what you're talking about and that it's really important to pay attention to what's going on in the world and understand it. So that was just a part of my upbringing. And as an adult, you know, driving to law school, I would listen to news in the morning and the afternoon, same thing when I was working. It was never about a party. Okay. That's uh, what I was wondering. Yeah. yeah. It was never about partisan politics. Uh, my parents voted for both Democrats and Republicans okay. growing up, probably more Republicans than Democrats, even though they are registered Democrats. Okay. We're in that part of Kentucky that has a lot of history with sort of uh, blue dog and Dixiecrats. You know, it's just a lot of people are registered Democrats who vote Republican now. Um, so I had a A somewhat conservative upbringing, the biggest thing I learned from my childhood about partisan politics was that regulation was very difficult for dairy farmers, especially regulation around climate change. We weren't even using the word climate change yet, but I remember Al Gore being exceptionally unpopular mm-hmm. um, in my house and in my family circles because of some of the requirements being imposed on really small farms at a time when the economy was already squeezing those farms out, and that really formed the perspective that I was going to be a Republican because I felt it was important to be close to the problem that you were trying to solve. Like understanding and having empathy for those farms and what they were going through before tagging them with a bunch of new requirements, uh, seemed really important to me. And that's kind of where I began my, you know, political perspective.
0: Okay. Cause even though the show is not labeled anymore that Beth on the right, you definitely had a right-leaning, um, Republican right-leaning for much of your life. Would you say that?
1: I would. I have okay. never been socially conservative. Okay. Um, I have always wanted to be a person who is very um, committed to upholding everyone's dignity. Mm-hmm. And so as an adult, you know, I have been LGBTQ affirming both as a person of faith and politically. Okay. Um as an adult, I have been pro choice. As an adult, I have been interested in increasing my understanding of racism in society. So there are lots of ways that I never neatly fit in the Republican tent. Okay. But I also have a perspective that local government is is the first place to start, then state government, then federal as a last
0: resort. Okay. Okay, very good. So that's that is good to know on your perspective because I relate to your story. But I came from very conservative. I've always been pro-life. Like this we'll we'll get in and talk about that just how this presidency has totally totally changed everything. Uh, but it did it to me. I mean, I went from the extreme to wow, just really reexamining and evolving with all my beliefs there. Um, so that's interesting for you, though, how that hit home and how that played out. So one of the quotes in the book, it says, growing up, you learn that women are rewarded for doing what is expected of them and making everyone feel good in the process. So just talk a little bit about, you know, you share in the book, like you always got the A's and the reward awards and you just always did what was expected of you um, and kind of how that played out then and how how that's playing out now or maybe transforming you and what you do now?
1: Well, I am definitely a recovering people pleaser. I certainly uh, had kind of an addiction to academic success as a child, and that carried on into my professional life. Um, I was pretty successful in pushing through some very progressive policies in my law firm when I was in the HR seat, and I think it's because I have um, cultivated this patience with other people and their perspectives, sometimes too much patience. Uh, but but I found success in always making people comfortable, helping people feel like whatever we were discussing was their idea, not mine. Um, helping people feel like everything they were saying has been heard and is valid. And oh, can we also look at it this way? You know, just a really soft approach has always worked well for me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And you know, as I have gotten more into the podcast and been exposed to lots of new perspectives and read and learned more. um, There are definitely people who will fairly say that my personality and approach have been largely shaped by patriarchy. And I think that that's a fair criticism of me. And it's something that I'm always working on myself um, and thinking about. I also have done a lot of therapy in my life, behavioral therapy, because I was in a really serious car accident. When I was 17, a person died in that accident. Um, And so that's just something that I've I've been working through um, since then. And I think putting all of those pieces together, I have definitely found my voice more doing the podcast. I'm a very different speaker and thinker than when we started. Um, I have learned that making people uncomfortable is not the greatest sin that I can that I can um, inflict on someone. Um, and I still think there's some value in my approach because I do think I have an opportunity to influence people because of that patience and that willingness to really hear them out, um, before I, and, and try to speak to them in a way that meets what's really important to them. So I think, There's definitely been a refinement of who I am and how I think about the way that I interact with other people to get away from that people-pleasing, to get away from that sense that I'm subservient to everyone and that I'm trying to meet their expectations. Um, I feel more powerful now than I have for most of my life. And I want to retain the aspects that keep me feeling very connected to others and, and like I can that, that I can be strong in my own voice without diminishing anyone else.
0: And one of the things which I, it struck me, you said Beth worried that this is in the book again, starting you started the podcast, Beth worried people would listen and they would realize how little they knew about her.
1: Absolutely. So, so
0: explain that a little bit. I guess I guess that goes back to what you were saying that did you just keep a lot of your thoughts and opinions to yourself? Yeah, to fit in. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I kept a lot to myself. And I think that I was in some ways, especially in the workplace, a, a bit of a chameleon, um, because I did really try to just make people feel comfortable. And, and I sat through a bunch of workshops where women were taught, like, if you want to be successful with the guys, you have to mirror their body language and you mirror some of their words back to them. And, um, all that training, training sunk in for me because look, I, you know, I was walking in as a girl who grew up on a dairy farm in a place that has zero stoplights and like one grocery store um, to this, this office tower in Cincinnati, which just felt giant and overwhelming to me. So I constantly had a sense of imposter syndrome, like one day everybody was going to realize they made a terrible mistake and I did not belong there. And so when I got those messages and when I saw it working for me to adapt to the person in front of me, it became a big part of my style. And inside, you know, I'm this person who loves poetry and could happily like go study Ayurveda or something in New Mexico. Like I was just putting on a costume in a lot of senses. And it takes a long time to take your costume off when you've practiced it. that long too.
0: For sure. And I, like you, I have two daughters and raising daughters in this world is hard, especially I have a similar just experience with that of being people, please are straight a fit in the box. And when you're on a podcast, you can't, I mean, you really, if you want to be authentic, you have to start selling opinions and your voice and you're going to, not everybody's going to like you. And so I'm coming to realize that too. And it's hard to grapple with, but I think it's part of really becoming who you are as a woman with that, how are you raising your daughters differently than, so they don't grow up with that same mindset.
1: It's a challenge because I definitely see a lot of my tendencies in my two, in my two daughters. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also already see that they're going to have much less unfolding to do than I've done. You know, I don't think that there was anything about my life that was a lie. I just think it was, it was compressed. And I think that the podcast, like you said, there's no point in doing a podcast if you aren't going to just show up as your full self um, every time you come to the mic. So it has pushed me to to open and to open, you know, to myself as much as to anyone else. Mm -hmm. And I think that because my daughters are growing up knowing this version of me. They're also extremely comfortable in their own skin, and they're they're very different in so many ways. And I think the fact that those differences are so apparent is a good indicator that each of them is just living, living yeah. their thing. Um, with academic success, you know, we our girls are smart and they're good at school. So we're just trying to find this place of encouraging them to use those gifts and to develop habits that are responsible and that will serve them well in life. And also knowing that that is one measurement and it is not a dispositive measurement, that they can still be really smart and the way it's being measured at school doesn't capture that, that being smart isn't enough, that being kind and courageous and having causes you care about and art forms of expression that you cherish is also really important. My daughter was, my older daughter was excited this week because she was tested for the gifted and talented program at school. And as we were talking about that, I tried to say that is just so wonderful. And also you're already gifted and talented as are all of the kids who weren't invited to take that test. They're just gifted and talented in different ways And a lot of the work of being a person is being able to see
0: everybody's strengths. So I don't know, you know, Yeah, no, I mean, it is a fine line and like you, I'm figuring out as I go. And I know my daughters are doing better than I did. And I think too, is, I mean, we just got to watch with our daughters, a vice, a woman vice president. And it's, I think of, I mean, my youngest is 11, my oldest 18, but I think like she saw that and doesn't grasp exactly like I do, just how amazing that is because that will be more of her norm, I think, going forward. Yeah. And things like that makes the difference that we would we never had. So there are changes and they're seeing things that we never saw and hopefully finding their voice quicker than we ever did um well it
1: makes them see themselves in different ways like just today my daughter was asked to color a picture of a veteran because they were talking about what veterans day means and my five-year-old decided to draw herself as a veteran that would never have occurred to me in a million years and then she said i told my teacher that someday i might fight in a war or something like not in a million years would i have thought about that for myself so I I see it happening in them. I also, you know, I'm gonna make a lot of mistakes in this process and I'll probably overcorrect in some places and uh, repeat some old patterns in others. And I just try to give myself some
0: grace for that. (laughs) For sure. I mean, here's a picture of my daughter. My oldest tells my daughter after watching um, Kamala's speech, like, Mary, you can be anything you want now. Do you see that? Like anything. And she proceeds to say, Oh, good, because I want to be a jellyfish. Perfect. I I'm love like, it. Lord. Is that what I've <laughs> taught and how I've empowered my daughter? But uh, it's like all of our daughters don't have to be vice presidents or lawyers. Like the point is, they really, there's no boundaries or boxes on them. And that's what we want to continue to instill with them. I don't know about a jellyfish, but that just, <laughs> we're, we're all such works in progress here. So, We're going to shift gears a little bit. Usually I take the whole hour really diving into people's stories more because I know there's more to your story than what you've talked about. But I don't want to waste the second half, our next last half hour talking about politics, Beth, um, because we are in, wow, just a state like we've never seen before. And I can't believe I'm actually talking politics on the show because I never planned to talk politics on this show when I dove in, but it was just sharing women's faith journeys and stories, but it's gradually progressed to talking about justice issues and politics, because I just, I don't know how we can not talk about these things right now. So... My first year of doing this was very different than my second year of doing this podcast. So here we are talking about politics. And I have to say I was a little bummed when I couldn't get an interview with you last month before the election, but my daughter's like, mom, isn't this so great you get to talk to her today? I'm like, yes, I would never have thought we'd have all this other stuff to unpack. So where to start? I've been going around with this in my head. Like we mentioned, you are no longer Beth from the right, but you do have a very right-leaning conservative past. And I will say the same about me, like I mentioned earlier, but extremely right-leaning. I was a save the babies and you're a, you know, if you ever, you can't be a Christian and vote Democrat. Like I really was from that mindset, maybe not the last four, but in my college years and that. But I know this presidency has totally shifted a lot of people and you're one of them. And I'm going to read, if you don't mind, just part of your, here's your why that you wrote October 6th. You said, here, <clears throat> here's how I have voted in presidential elections. George W. Bush, John McCain, George W. Bush twice, John McCain, Mitt Ron. Even McCollin, I have never voted for a Democrat for president. That will change this year. I'm equally heartbroken and resolved about it. So here we are. And I wrote a similar and I wrote a similar never voted for a Democrat ever for anything and did this election. Mine was probably more because I've always just been pro-life and you just had to vote for a Republican or instilled with me, like, if you're a Christian, you just have to. So tell me your process. I mean, that's a lot to unpack in a short amount of time, but was it specifically the Trump presidency? You go on in that and we'll talk about that. But Was that immediately when Trump was elected that you felt like no way or was it seeing the last four years?
1: No, you know, I try to be really clear about the fact that Donald Trump is just a person to me. Mm -hmm. He has not broken my heart because I never had any expectations of him. I was shocked when he won the Republican Party's nomination. I was even more shocked when he became the president in 2016. I felt like from the very beginning i understood who he was and what he was about and had very very low expectations of his presidency what broke my heart um and changed me was the way that other republicans responded to him because if if you went into 2016 thinking, well, you know, maybe our government needed some shaking up and he's a businessman and maybe he'll do some things differently. I think I was willing to hope that that would work out for us (laughs) like as a nation. I was very skeptical, but I was willing to hope that that would work out for us. I think embedded in that idea was an assumption that there would be some real guardrails around him, that people who were traditional Republicans would constrain his instincts that went beyond being a businessman who might come in and shake things up a little bit. And so for the first two years of his presidency, I thought a lot about, okay, how can we vote in primaries for people who will do that, who will be those guardrails? How can we make sure that the party stays about the things that I thought were important? And the truth of the matter is, you know, a lot of people are fond of saying, I didn't leave the party, the party left me. It's both for me. But the truth of it is, is that it's just both. On the first part of the party leaving me, I am just really disappointed, especially around just like basic things that are dishonest that the president says that Republican leaders from the beginning haven't said, no, that's not true. Don't listen to that, that's not true. And I think that that has had a very corrosive impact on our democracy and it's just not something I want to be part of anymore. And the second piece of it is that doing this podcast has exposed me to people and their life stories and given me an education I could not have received any other way. I wake up every day to emails from all over the world and people sharing with me their life experiences. And that has caused me to see things like income inequality in a different light. It has caused me to see things um, related to systemic racism in a different light. It has caused me to become more passionate about um, how I use the aspects of life that have been pretty easy for me to be an advocate for people who have not had those advantages. And so... I think that I was drifting in a more progressive direction anyway and was inclined to, because I would, would have always considered myself a moderate Republican. Um, I never had, I never received the message that you couldn't be a Christian and a Democrat that yeah. that message was never conveyed to me. So I never had this sense of like, I can't cross party lines. That would be immoral. So I was drifting in that direction anyway. And then to see, just the collapse of the principles that I thought were important about being a Republican that this president created, um, it became not a hard decision. And the day that I decided to switch my party registration was the day that the president spoke about representatives Omar and Talib and Ocasio-Cortez, who I do not agree with on a lot of things. Yeah. Like They are still far more progressive than I am. Um, I'm much more like an Abigail Spanberger, Alyssa Slotkin kind of kind of person. But when he talked about them needing to go back where they came from, and not a single Republican elected official on my ballot here in Kentucky or at the federal level was able to say, That's awful. That is not who we are as Americans. That is not what this country stands for. I thought that you know, there there's nothing that I, Beth Silvers, can do to bring this around to a healthy party. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I'm going to have to move on.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So many of what you so much of what you just said rings a bell with me as well. I mean, stories have been a huge part for my transitioning, doing this podcast. That's why when I started this podcast to where I'm now, sharing women's stories, they've changed me. Because like you, I'm a white privileged woman and had a pretty easy and what I believe can be pretty easy and not very much pushing me on out of my comfort zone but when you hear stories and really listen and that empathy I remember when we saw you and Sarah um at the evolving faith conference in Denver and I don't know if you remember but the sitting there with my daughter and a woman got up in the audience talking about the president calling her country a shithole yeah I mean, me and my daughter, I'm starting to tear up now. Me and my daughter were just sobbing. And that was a pivotal moment for me because I thought, oh my gosh, like there's real people he's hurting. And it just started to, oh, I'm tearing up. Um, it just started to break down from there and then meeting people and hearing stories. And I thought, how can I, my Christian faith, how is that aligning with this? Um, So yeah, I think a similar story for many, but we still have many that, that aren't there and didn't switch. And I think that's the wrestling right now. Um, I want to read one other thing and I, I will share that your thing that you wrote on your why, because it's, I think it's pretty powerful, um, But I want to read one other thing from it. You said, we're paying such a price for the cheapest substitute for a presidency we've seen in my lifetime. I cannot tolerate it. If you see this differently, I love you as a fellow human being. Um, I will not make anyone feel better about it. I will not pretend to see, quote, both sides as equals here on this one decision. So reading that and reading your book, that's what I'm like, how how do we move forward with We know that a higher percentage of white women voted for Trump this election, how do we move forward with that belief if we did switch? Cause there's plenty of women, white women that didn't, we didn't all, I mean, just hearing your last podcast with Sarah talk about, I know, I mean, she was in tears. Like I know some of us are trying and that's my that's my inbox is like, I tried, I, I did, I, I didn't vote for him but I've, I'm in this group of like, oh, did more of you did it. So I guess, how do we move forward making sense of that? Like if we really believe there's one decision here but I know the message is talking with grace and nuance. There's Sarah, so me, much here, Sarah, lead me, help me out here.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, so our book is called, I think you're wrong, but I'm listening. Mm-hmm. So there's room for, I think you're wrong. I think you can have lots of grace for other people and you can have a deeply nuanced perspective on how American politics works and still have places where you say, no, I make my stand here. Yeah. This is, this is where, Uh, Again, I can love you and respect you um, and just say to you, like, I, you are wrong about this. I'm so sorry. I want people to tell me when I'm wrong. And they have a lot of my evolution has come from people telling me in sometimes really unkind words, how wrong I am about something. And I want to be a person who can still learn, um, even when it isn't being packaged for me, like part of unwrapping everything that it means to be a white woman in society is recognizing that the world for the most part has been built for your consumption it has been built to entice you right as a consumer so it's made for you custom made for you right and i have gotten my best learning from things that aren't custom made for me that's um That's just to me being a good, curious person in the world, recognizing that like not everything that teaches you something important is going to feel good and often it won't. So that's one piece of it. Um, I also think that you I don't want to contribute to tying Christianity to a party the way that it has been tied to the Republican Party on the Democratic side. I I don't think you have to look, I think you can have a very different perspective on the way the government should function than I ever have, or than I ever will, or than I do right now, and still be a Christian. Like there, And I think you can be a person who is not um, bigoted in any way. Like, I, I don't wanna say to people, well, you must think this way now. This is actually the true right way. What I do want to convey, and that this is wise post, is that I don't think The current administration has been honest with the American people, has attempted to govern for all of the American people, has been at all shy about endorsing forms of racism and nationalism that are toxic. And so I am really happy to discuss our differences on all kinds of things. But I think preserving a government that we can have any kind of trust and confidence in requires us to go in a different direction this time and i do not think that joe biden is the face of a radical departure from the type of leadership that all of us can benefit from Um, i get it if you voted for you know republican senators and joe biden i totally get that Mm -hmm. Uh, it's not the choice that i made and I really, in my heart of hearts, if I'm just being transparent, hoped for a repudiation of the entire party because of the way it's gotten behind this president. But I get that choice. Um, and I think divided government often has some benefits. So I never wanna say to anybody, there's no space for anything that you believe here. I do wanna be really clear about the fact that, that I, don't have, I don't have room for a good faith Um, support of Donald Trump and the way that he has led and the way that I that he has told us he will continue to lead um, if he's in office for another four years.
0: Do you struggle like right now I find myself with a tension of knowing I have friends and family that I love dearly that voted for Trump still Mm -hmm. and I'm struggling with that I'm struggling to like separate not thinking they're racist not thinking like that they just are fallen for a lot. Like, how are how do you separate that and move forward?
1: Well, I think it. Um, I think it's difficult. People have very different opinions about how much openness we should have to people who
0: voted differently than and that. We do. That's that's I think what I'm going for. Yeah. Like, yeah.
1: My personal belief is that we are never going to see good solid movement from our people Mm -hmm. around issues of equity and justice uh, if we shun them if we separate ourselves from them I think what will happen is a hardening of those perspectives now my inbox is filled with people who tell me no you should absolutely shun them You should shun them, you should shame them, you should leave them to die off and be replaced by a new demographic. And I hear that, and I'm not gonna tell anybody they should feel differently than I do about it, but my sincere belief, and I think there is like mountains of data to back this up, is that where I have the opportunity to influence someone, it requires me to stay in relationship with them. And I want a more just world Um, that my people participate in, you know? I don't want to just write off the place I came from and the people I love. Um, I have seen an evolution in the the people of my origin over time. It is not as far along the path as I would hope. And many of them still support this president and can't even understand why I see him as racist. That's the gap, right? We have a different definition of racism. Because they don't believe that he hates any individual person of a different ethnicity. And I'm talking about systems. I'm talking about um, policy that disproportionately impacts. We're having two different conversations. And so I can shame them and shun them for not being part of my conversation. Or I can continue to work to bring them into my conversation. And also, there's still things for me to learn from them. You know, there, there are, we got a very heartfelt email from someone who did not vote for Donald Trump, but considered it because she feels that Donald Trump at least values people with less education than Democrats.
0: It's interesting. And,
1: and, and it was a very thoughtful, it was a very thoughtful message about her sense that Democrats do not value the labor of people who don't have a college education and don't value the thoughts of those people. Now, I'm not in Democratic Party politics in a way to say like one way or the other what the messaging is or should be. There is something for me to learn from listening to that perspective, right? Because I so value education and I so value, um, you know, people who have worked in academia, people who are more intellectual, like there's something for me to hear in how do, how do I do a better job valuing, just like I talked about with my daughter, valuing everybody's gifts and talents, no matter where they come from or how they are expressed. So I don't want to isolate myself, not only because I want to be able to influence my friends and family who are in a different place, but I also don't want to lose what they have to offer me in, in other areas, which is a right. lot.
0: Right. Ah, I'm listening. I am listening and I'm wrestling with it because I am hearing both sides. I mean, with your book, I mean, it's very much great. And your conversations are grace filled. And I guess that is where the grace comes in. And I feel like me, we have been able to do that with other Presidents and administrations. I think this is so hard because we are talking to me blatant racism, inequality, womanizing, just all these things that I'm like, how can you be blind to? Like, those aren't issues. Like, I think you're wrong and I don't want to listen because you're wrong is how I feel. And I think, in so many, I mean, that's what I am hearing. (laughs) But I do think you're right that. What is, does that closing that door do anything? No. Um, What were you going to say there? I'm sorry.
1: Well, just that I, I get that. And, and here's the other thing. So to me, the principle of grace fundamentally, and the reason we use the word is because grace indicates that you get something you don't deserve. Okay. That's what to me, Christian grace is about. And that's what civic grace is about. Mm -hmm. You don't have to deserve any credit or any hearing to receive it from me because that's how I believe we can connect with each other. Yeah. So that's part one and why I lean heavily into that. Part two, though, is maybe that's not everybody's work to do. You know, we try to be really clear. I'm not asking someone who's gay to sit down and have a grace-filled conversation with someone who thinks being gay is a sin and that they're constantly engaging in some kind of abomination. Like that's not your work to do. Um, Sarah says this well, some people are called to be safe and some of us are called to be uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And so. I also think that there are those of us with a lot of privilege who maybe aren't called to this work and maybe don't have the gift of being patient or don't have the gift of um, being able to put that separation in and figure out how do we continue to work on each other. And I think there are seasons for this. For sure, for sure. A lot of people have reached out since the election saying like, I don't, I don't see how we can come together or uh, p- people are disputing the election result. How am I supposed to have a graceful conversation with them? And my response has been, Maybe you're not right now. Right. It's put for now at the end, because yeah. this people will a month or two down the road, will be having a different conversation than we are today. That's
0: and, I, right. yeah, and I think that's where I'm landing okay. as I process this week, because I, I would say majority of my family still voted for Trump. I move come from moving, lived in the Bible Belt the last seven years of Oklahoma. Most of the people I knew there voted for Trump. And it's, it's upsetting to me. But they can't understand at all where I've come from. Like, what happened to her? But I think to me, it's come kind of like right now is not the time. Like, you're not going to go just like let these relationships just simmer and then when it's time to open that door. Because what you were just saying earlier, I agree that we're not all called to that. But I and you, maybe you disagree with me, but as white women that have had a shift, I feel like we're really, I feel like we're called to it. I mean. Mostly, Would you agree? Because I'm sure not going to leave it up to our BIPOC people to have to go have these conversations. So I feel like we are more called to it.
1: I was very um, moved by Dr. David Camp, who we had on the podcast a couple okay. of years ago. Um, Dr. Camp has developed what he calls the White Ally Toolkit. Okay. And he came on to talk about and he said, hey, white people, listen to me. I, as a black man, cannot reach your racist uncle the way that you can, and if you can move his needle a tiny bit, I'm not asking him to be woke, I'm not asking him to never say something that's offensive, but if you can move his needle at all, if you can move his needle to just understanding that black people in America have a different experience than white people. Yeah. That is a massive cultural shift that benefits that everybody. So yeah. And it's just a, to me, that is a realistic, grace filled perspective yeah. that if white people can move people in our lives a teeny tiny bit, and this is what we're not doing, right? Because a lot of us white people who feel this sense of conviction now believe everybody needs to come as far as we've come. Yes, <laughs> true. And that we haven't come far enough and need to keep doing better and better. Well, that's great. Let's keep that. I always want to be learning more and developing my empathy muscles and, you know, advocating harder. Fine. But to expect that of every other person in my life so that they have the privilege of staying in relationship with me. That seems like I haven't done enough of my own work yet to recognize that everything shouldn't be gift wrapped for me to be nice and comfortable. So I really think about his work all the time and his call to action all the time. That's, you know, that's where I take my cue.
0: That's so good. I'll will find the link and put that in this episode because I think um, I don't know that I listened to that conversation, but that is so profound. Just that little moving of the needle. Um, so, does it discourage you at all, or how did you feel, or maybe you're still processing it—the fact that more white women voted for Trump in this election than the last time. I do find time. it,
1: yeah, I do find it discouraging. And Sarah and I are in a little bit different places about this. We we've been talking about it. You know, Sarah feels like. We don't want to discourage the white women who are out there doing the work. And I don't. Um, and I also want to recognize that there are a lot of things in my life uh, where I am part of that demographic and I I do bear responsibility for where that demographic lands. And, and that's not to say like, oh my God, sorry for all the other white women because I take responsibility right, for them. Right. But it is to say, um, we're not, I'm not doing enough within my demographic yeah. Yeah. to try to push this conversation forward. So simple things like I really have encouraged people to listen to nice white parents because Great. I think when you just start to think about things like who talks at the PTA meeting the most, um, you get it, it starts to sink in and that's a message that can, can start to sink in without like tying up all the other stuff that gets tied up when we're talking about this candidate or that one. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think there are really fruitful places to explore these conversations among white women. And I think that, have I done enough of it? No, and I need to do more of it. Yeah,
0: I mean, I don't think the work obviously the work does not end. Um, But I did, I've wrestled with that too because I was very discouraged last week and just like almost upset at white women. Like, what is it? But then I also found like, like you, an inbox of, I I did switch, I did, you know, I was doing the work. So I don't want to discourage, but I also want to realize there's so much work to do. And it's, it's not centering, it's centering us, I think, when we are also hurt of, well, I did. It's okay, you're good. Let's keep keep doing the work and quit centering yourself. Because the statistics also, if I, I was shocked to see this, that white men voted for him less this election. How do you explain
1: that? I don't know. You know, I've been, Holding the exit polling loosely. I know. That's why I'm
0: like, uh, here's what it says, it's, but. It's a
1: weird time. Right. Um, what I have learned from the exit polling so far is that people process the pandemic in very different ways. Yeah. So I processed the pandemic as an angry, as an angry voter mm-hmm. because uh, my mother has had a terrible experience having COVID covid-19 terrible experience like it could be a positive one but you know she's she had a very severe case of covid-19 mm-hmm. that is still detrimental to her health and still playing out as a major factor in my family one and two furious that we have not found a way to get kids back to school safely yeah and yeah. in my mind that is because of a lack of federal leadership there are white women who would say the same two things but see it as a reason to keep Republicans in office because they believe shutting down the economy has been so harmful, and they see it as a choice that we either keep the economy open or we close it. Right? Good point. And when you put it in those terms, it takes people to, down a different path. I think similarly, people have had very different reactions to the racial reckoning and the protests following George Floyd's murder that are heavily influenced by media choices and consumption. And so I have, I didn't even understand what the president was saying when he was like, white suburban women, you should like me, I saved your neighborhoods. Well, my neighborhood has never needed saving. um, But I also, I don't react in fear when I see images of of riots on television right right and I process what is a protest differently than what I think starts to skirt into criminal behavior so I'm just trying to get that there were enormous heavily emotional issues that we all took in super differently on the ballot this time yeah And I don't know what that portends for the future.
0: Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I was having a similar similar conversation with a friend and she brought up the same thing. There was so much more for people this year. So we have just a few minutes left, Beth. I'm gonna go back to something that you said and that powerful, this is why. You ended it saying, the Trump presidency is making us worse, infinitely worse and a close election battled out in the courts will take our sick, tired, fragile nation to a brink from which I'm not sure we can wholly return So here we are. It's playing out. What do you still feel that way? Do you think that's where this is going? Where do we go from here if we're not wanting to if we don't think it's right to have those conversations with our Trump supporting friends, family? But this is a big issue that they're arguing about still and holding on to and believing.
1: Yeah, I well, I do not think that we are on the brink in the way that I had thought about when I wrote that post. So my fear when I wrote the post was that we would have, again, a lot of third-party votes okay. and very, very close margins and okay. perhaps even an electoral college situation where no one got to 270. Okay. So that is that was what I was deeply fearful of. I think the situation we're in now is bad, uh, but it could be a lot worse. So I feel very confident in the way this election was conducted. I feel very confident that there are margins sufficient for the Biden-Harris campaign to have multiple paths to 270. I feel very confident that courts are quickly disposing of lawsuits. And, and look, I think those lawsuits should have their day in court. I, I am ashamed that we have a president who won't concede and Republicans in Congress backing him up when the results to me are very clear. At the same time, I do not fear these lawsuits. If there were issues, we should resolve those issues. Um, I've followed those lawsuits closely. None of them involve a sufficient number of ballots to change the result of this election. So I feel very confident that our system will hold through this. Now there are people who disagree with me strongly about that and make really smart arguments about why. That's just where I am today. I feel confident that our system can hold through this. Um, The damage that is happening in my opinion is that we have so many people who are willing to entertain a fantasy scenario where President Trump actually wins this election who know better. That's what makes me furious. There are people playing along with this, um, Politico described it this morning as performance art, who know better. And we see the polling following their lead. We see now that 70% of Republicans think this election was unfair. That's twice as many as would have said the same last week. That trajectory is bad and it's dangerous. Sure. And so I am, I am not worried about the system kind of collapsing from the house of representatives having to decide an electoral college tie, for example. But we have a very long road ahead of us when so many people think that the election was fraudulent because their candidate didn't win.
0: Yeah. And that's, I think we're, if I can get peace about you don't close those doors on Trump supporting friends, I can get peace on that. But moving forward to this that I see so many holding on to, it's fraud. We lost this election because it was unfair. Like, I don't even know how to proceed with that. And I think that's going to be really hard. And do you even engage in those conversations?
1: So my personal perspective right now is to give it a little time. Okay. Okay. I, I think right now everybody is very hot. I think that as leaders move, hopefully people will move too. And, you know, I, there are a handful of people coming out to say like, time to be done. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think that this exodus of people from mainstream social media to parlor is probably going to be short lived. I could be wrong about that. I've been wrong about a lot of things (laughs) over the past five years. Um, But I can imagine that some people who are heading there will eventually miss the vacation and baby photos and come back and at least keep some exposure to their friends and family. And also might be, it, it might be darker than what they think they want, you know, over there. I just kind of have faith that time moves us in the right direction. Yeah. It could get worse before it gets better. hundred yeah. percent. And I never want to wear rose colored glasses that ignore the present reality in front of us. Um, but I do think our systems will hold through this. I do think Joe Biden is going to do a good job. And I think yeah. him doing a good job could move some people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um i i again for now does a lot of work for me for now i think we just let people feel their feelings
0: okay
1: um, but stand really confident in the results of this election um and support joe biden and, and pressure our republican members of congress who can hear us to accept these results and move us forward and then we see what the next step looks like
0: yeah That's good. That is good. And the last thing before we wrap up, I do want to go back and ask you um, when you just said things will get better or things will get worse before they get better. I think of COVID and I know you have a story about your mom getting COVID and really suffering. I remember hearing the episode where you talked about your mother, that she has a compromised immune system. My mom does too. She has horrible rheumatoid arthritis and not to mention my dad passed earlier this year. So she's had the worst year of her life. And she is my biggest fear that she cannot go through this so tearing up again because hearing you talk about your mom and when she got it it was just heart-wrenching for me and I hearing your struggle so can you just we don't have to I don't want you to have to go through all that but just maybe one what you would like to say to people that are still there's still people not wearing masks or don't think things to be shut down like just what share your heart on that for the last final thought
1: well my mom also has rheumatoid arthritis very severe. And so her getting COVID was my worst case scenario. She went nowhere after the pandemic started because it was her worst case scenario as well. My dad was also very conscientious but still managed to contract it. And my mom then got it and she spent 15 days in the hospital in September. Um, Here we are in early November. She's still on supplemental oxygen. She is doing physical therapy. She is in a tremendous amount of pain that her doctors associate with COVID that they think will last for another three to four months. Um, And so, you know, what I want people to know is that we don't walk around wearing signs that tell you who is going to experience a cold versus who is going to not survive this. And there were... 13 days where I was pretty sure my mother was going to die. And I'm so grateful that she did not. Um, But it pains me when people talk about this herd immunity concept as though we're just willing for people to have these experiences of being in a hospital alone. And we're willing to let families wonder if their loved ones are going to die. And we're willing to let some people die And we're willing to have those families then struggle with whether it's responsible to conduct a funeral or not. And we're, that's just all the price of doing business so that we can, um, have a birthday party in a restaurant that just breaks my heart. And as difficult as the past few months have been, um, I've learned a lot about my family. I've learned a lot about my neighborhood. I've learned a lot about my kids and myself and our capacity to adapt to a challenge that calls us to make some sacrifices for our neighbors. I don't think I've really been asked, I'm gonna be 40 in March. I haven't really been asked to sacrifice for my neighbors in my lifetime. I haven't. And if this is what I'm being asked, stay in your house more uh, and put a mask on when you go to Target, that seems pretty simple to me. And if it if it helps any single family, you can be skeptical about the science. You can be skeptical about what the masks do. If you prevent one family from suffering, has it not been worth it? And what has it really taken from you for the possibility of helping someone else? And the science gets better and better on this all the time. Right. But I have found that it's just f- fruitless to try to convince people of that. <laughs> so... So what I really ask is just consider that it takes almost nothing from you and it could give so much to someone else and other generations sacrifices have been so much heavier than what's being asked of us right now. We, we can do this and the longer we fight with it, the longer we're going to be asked to do it.
0: Yeah. Beth, I can't thank you enough for just sharing your heart and grace with me and my listeners today. I knew I would love talking to you and I just, am, I'm honored to get to, so thank you.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me and thanks for what you're doing. I think storytelling is how we become better humans. And mm-hmm. so I know that your work makes a huge difference mm-hmm. I'm glad you're doing it.
0: Thank you. And tell us, we'll link it up in the show notes, but where can, where can you be found? And yeah, you also so- have Patreon.
1: We have so many things. Our yes. website is pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. You can sign up for our email newsletter there, which is a great way to know all the things that are going on in our universe. You can listen to Pantsuit Politics wherever you find podcasts. You can buy our book wherever you find books. Again, if I think you're wrong, but I'm listening. Um, we do it my co-host Sarah does a fantastic daily news brief on instagram so if you follow us there you can get your news every day five minutes or less and then if you want a deeper look at a single issue uh, Monday through Thursday on our Patreon, patreon.com slash pantsuit politics, I produce what we call the nightly nuance. So I take one topic and break it down in like seven to twenty minutes, depending on how how uh, dense it is. Right. So we would love to uh, meet people in any and all spaces. We are we are better for um, the diversity of our community and having everybody think about these issues alongside us.
0: Right. Thank you for all your work. You do a lot of it, Beth. Thank you again Thank for you. today. Okay. Thanks for having me. Nice yeah. to meet you. Nice to meet you oh, your too. your daughter. I said thanks for listening. I don't know about you, but I received so many takeaways from this conversation with Beth. So many of her words I'm still mulling over in my mind as we're in the middle of these politically divisive times and I'm trying to navigate forward with friends and family who vote and believe differently than me. For me, one of the most powerful statements best said in our conversation was, where I have the opportunity to influence someone, it requires me to stay in relationship with them. Easier said than done, I know, but when it comes down to it, I think those words are dripping with truth. For more on that, I'd encourage you to check out the Pantsuit Politics episode Beth mentioned with Dr. David Camp entitled How to Be a White Ally. I put the link to that episode on the episode show notes at herstoryspeaks.com. There you can also find the link to the other podcast Beth mentioned, Nice White Parents. And of course, you'll also find where to find Beth her podcast, and purchase her book. Finally, I have a favor to ask of you. If you enjoyed this podcast, can you head over to iTunes and leave a review? Although it seems like a little thing, it means a lot in terms of folks being able to find this podcast. Thanks so much for listening today.